Welcome to the Retirement Committee Field Guide Podcast. I'm your host, Alden Bianchi. The Retirement Committee Field Guide explores the world of U.S. retirement plan governance with a focus on fiduciary committees. U.S. retirement plans, 401k plans in particular, have over the last dozen years been the subject of an unending stream of class action lawsuits alleging some combination of plan mismanagement, excessive fees, or self-dealing. Plan sponsors have responded by upgrading plan compliance and installing robust oversight that often includes the appointment of a retirement or fiduciary committee. These committees are typically advised by professional investment managers and benefits consultants. Each month, this podcast examines some aspect of retirement committee maintenance, emerging best practices, and developing law, among others. Its purpose is to educate and inform plan sponsors, committee members, and others with an interest in the topic on all aspects of the work of retirement committees and to encourage committees that are best in class. In this inaugural episode, I speak with Bob Clark, Managing Director, Executive Compensation Benefits, Marsh McLennan Agency, New England. Bob regularly advises retirement plan committees, and for the reasons that will fast become apparent, he's an ideal guest to help get this podcast underway. I appreciate Bob's participation, and I hope you enjoy the show. So we're going to start today by looking at an overview of how an advisor might look at retirement committees. And I chose to start with an advisor because these are the people who most interact with retirement committees on a day-to-day basis. They're the folks that retirement committee members tend to first look to uh, to see how to organize and operate their plans. So, Bob, welcome. Thank you, Alden. I appreciate being uh, invited to share the mic for your uh, initial edition of your podcast. It's uh, both an honor and a pleasure. Well, I appreciate that. It's uh, This is a little bit of an adventure and a, an experiment. So let's start, in, I think, in a very simple place. What do fiduciary committees do exactly? <laughs> what do fiduciary committees do? I, I think there are probably what I would consider five roles of a fiduciary committee. The first is the committees of fiduciary to the plan and responsible for overseeing the plan and its investments. Second, the committee establishes rules and regulations for the administration of the plan and makes administrative decisions. Third, the committee supervises the investments of the plan, has authority to select and change funds or options for investment managers, and makes decisions concerning those investment options, funds, or managers available under the plan. Fourth, the committee is responsible for monitoring the marketplace for a number of things to ensure that the plan is offering services that are appropriate for the workforce, the plan's investments are performing to establish standards, that fees are reasonable, and to affect plan changes as appropriate. And finally, the committee is also responsible for ensuring that all requirements of ERISA Section 404C are met and includes ensuring that participants provided information and opportunities for education so that they can make informed decisions about the investment offerings in the plan. And and quite frankly, Alden, as you know, many organizations adopt a committee charter that state the specific delegation of fiduciary responsibility and the actual roles of the committee and its members. Uh, We find that to be a helpful uh, guide uh, for committee members, particularly as committee members turn over when you're bringing someone new onto the uh, onto uh, the committee. It's a, it's a good way for them to understand what's expected of them. 
So, Bob, thanks for that. Uh, and I might start here with an observation that we could have opened with the question of, does ERISA even require us to have committees? And the uh, pretty obvious answer to that is no, they don't. But they really have evolved to become a, a, an agreed upon best practice. This is really what retirement plans ought to do, or at least retirement plans of, of some sufficient size based on either assets or headcount. Um, but it is, has become something that is so commonly expected uh, that they are now uh, routinely encountered. And when a company of any size doesn't have a committee, you start to, you start to wonder a bit about what's going on. Um, so who, who is on a committee? Who, who would you encounter on a committee? And, and, and who, who might not you want, who might you not want to have on? <laughs> Good questions there, one of which is loaded. Uh, let, let's start first maybe at how many members. Uh, you know, we, we work, sure. we'll, we'll work in, in very small organizations where it may just be a single person. But, but let's, let's talk with maybe middle-sized organizations. We, we'll see as few as three and as many as seven, though, quite frankly, we do work with a number of committees that have a dozen and they work seamlessly. Uh, and that's because when it comes to scheduling, they'll schedule those meetings around other commitments of the same group. Um, but, but the reason for keeping it to three to seven is ease of scheduling. Uh, if you're trying to get together on a quarterly basis, coordinating calendars of more than seven people can become a nightmare. Uh, then the, the more important question, who should be on the committee? I, I, I like to have three different areas represented if possible. I, I think the first two are critical. The third's um, really, really good to have. The first is human resources. Since most of the plans these days uh, tend to be 401k plans, profit sharing plans, 403b plans, or 457 plans, i.e. those that participants have skin in the game, uh, they tend to have uh, more involvement with, with, uh, with the plans. Finance should be involved as well. I think that the, most of the litigation, as you know, Alden, uh, it, it surrounds fees. What are the fees? Do you know the fees? Are the fees reasonable? Um, typically, folks in finance are well-equipped to be able to make those types of uh, assessments. And then, obviously, monitoring investments. That typically also will fall under the realm of, of finance. So HR and finance, I think, really need to be involved uh, in monitoring a plan. And then it's great to have uh, legal advice, uh, ERISA counsel whenever possible. I think we, we have a number of clients that have in-house counsel that will adjoin meetings, and we have several uh, that, that have out, uh, outside or counsel that uh, will be involved as well. But anytime there's an issue with the plan, they can come to us for advice relative to investments, relative to a service provider issue. But if it's relative to a compliance and legal issue, we always want to get the right resources involved. I think another part of your question was, uh, well, let me know. Let, let me say uh, also then depending on organizations, there may be others. So I said human resources and must, finances and must, legal is great to have. Depending on what type of organization you are, you may have to have others or best practice would be have others. So if we're talking about higher education, uh, it's 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 crucial to have representation from both staff and faculty. Some manufacturing organizations, it's great to have representation from plant management or production management. And then many uh, committees will have a secretary, and it's not an administrative assistant type secretary, but rather somebody who's going to keep notes and be responsible for 
follow through of action at the employer end. And that typically is a 401k or 403b manager or analyst. And then the question of who should not be on a fiduciary committee. I'm going to defer a bit to you on Alden, to, to, to you, Alden, on this one, but our recommendation is typically not to have a member of the board of directors or trustees involved in the plans. Uh, and certainly you don't want to have somebody involved on the committee who cannot understand the role of the committee, that it has to be to represent the participants at all times. And I think that there are certain individuals uh, that every organization has that, that probably doesn't uphold that very well. So I, to me, again, the, the, the board of directors and trustees, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in total agreement with you there. One of my pet peeves is please do not put a board member on your, on your fiduciary committee. And I'll explain in a second why I think that's true. I also think you know, really ought to keep your CEO off that committee. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the reason is this. Um, a fiduciary committee, if you start with ERISA's fundamental structure, it says there has to be at least, at least a named fiduciary. And there is a, a plan administrator and, 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 a, and a plan sponsor as well. The plan administrator is the key role. That's the role that the fiduciary committee takes on. But you start with the presumption that the company or the plan sponsor is the fiduciary, is the plan administrator fiduciary. And then that power has to devolve from there. So if you do nothing, if you name nobody, the board is the plan administrator. That's right. From there, power can devolve down. And that's what happens. The board appoints a fiduciary committee or really should. And, and I think in some future episodes, we'll get, we'll really drill down on how you get to this, this result. But in the event of a claim against a plan, if you don't properly establish a committee, your board members are going to be the ones that are sued. And this is what happened. The, the first instance of, of highly visible instance of this was the in Enron litigation back a number of years ago, where the claims were against the plan. They dragged in senior management, dragged in the board. And that's exactly what the, what the, what the retirement committee is intended to avoid. Right. You want to ensure that the plan administrative function is being handled by, 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 by folks who know something about fiduciary committees, at which point the board merely has the has so-called obligation to monitor, which we'll drill down in, in later episodes, I hope. Uh, but they certainly don't have that frontline responsibility. Uh, one other thing I'll note about your, 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 your last response is that over the years, my experience is that plan governance has become far more formal and far more consultant-driven. I think those are good developments uh, to the point where fewer and fewer plans actually actually have counsel at the committee meetings. Much larger plans do. The, the plans that have a, a, a formally designated structure, a, 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 a full a full time administrative staff, and the like. Uh, but more and more, I tell people that the lawyer is the least important person in the room sometimes, and uh, and and I'm I'm happy to at least be in the room. Uh, of course, that all goes away when there's an audit or, or, or a lawsuit or something like that. Right. Right. So, um, but, but, but I, I think you I, I think that's point is well taken. There are clearly people you don't want to have on the committee from time to time. So you're, you're involved or you're advising a committee, you show up at uh, their quarterly meeting, for example, why don't you walk us through what happens in a committee meeting? So you all sit down and 
course, now it's on, today it's on a, on some kind of video conferencing arrangement. It used to be it actually show up at the client's place of business, I suppose. But uh, what happens? That's a good point, Alden. If you'll become quite a bit different, I, I think the thing that's most different about them is you can fit more of them into a day now because there is no expectation <laughs> that you're getting in a car to go from yeah. one to the next. Or a plane. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So uh, what, what, what we see in a, a typical uh, meeting agenda and the content then of a quarterly meeting, once you've gotten through the introductions, I, I think the five major components would be uh, – a review of prior meeting minutes, and I'll drill into each of these a little bit. Re- review of prior meeting minutes, review of administrative items, review of plan investments, review of participant education initiatives, and then what I'll call the the kind of topic of the quarter. And these are topics that should be considered at least once a year. So if you have a topic of the quarter, you can cover four of them, and I'll give you three of them. One is the uh, a re- annual review of fiduciary responsibilities. And this is typically timed around if there is a new committee member added. Otherwise, it's just part of one of the agendas. Another would be review of fiduciary documents, committee charter, investment policy statement, things of that nature. And uh, the third one I think that's critical is plan fee and services benchmarking. Uh, I think given recent litigation, <laughs> as you're well aware, Alden, that's probably a real good topic for a uh, a, a, a podcast of its own, uh, just the the uh, litigation that's taken place and the focus on plan fees. So I think it's really important that sponsors be aware of their fees and benchmarking them if they can on an annual basis. So let's just drill into each of these. A review of prior meeting minutes is just to make sure that there's continuity from meeting to meeting. So we've, we've, we've produced the meeting minutes uh, you know, a couple of weeks after the meeting, you circulate those, everybody has a chance to make input, you memorialize them at the start of the next meeting. Then like to go through any outstanding administrative items. At certain times, plan testing comes up. There may be some decisions made around plan testing, maybe questions around plan reporting. There may be audit issues like we were talking about before the pod- podcast. Uh, and there may be some proposed plan changes. So I think all those administrative items, we want to make sure stay on the table and are moving along. Third and probably you know the most important or at least the, the cornerstone of the quarterly review process is the review of plan investments. So you're monitoring the current investment lineup, maybe focusing more times on those that don't meet criteria. Uh, many firms will maintain a, a watch list, if you will, for those funds that aren't meeting criteria, and you just might spend a little more time on those. There'll be consideration of new investment options, which could either be replacement options for funds that are on that quote-unquote watch process and not passing through, uh, or it could be new asset categories being added. I think back uh, to when target date funds became uh, very, very popular within 401k and 403b plans. It was kind of considered a not necessarily a new asset category, but a new breed in target date funds. Uh, also, uh, approval of changes to current investment options. So many of our clients, and, and I, I think you're aware of this, Alden, will have a voting process where they'll first make a motion, a second, and then and then vote to approve all of the investments uh, or investment changes that are being recommended. So in review of those plan investment options on a quarterly basis is uh, a, a critical component of the meeting. We then focus a lot on participant education initiatives. This obviously is different for a pension plan where there tend not to be many participant education initiatives. But with a 401k or 403b plan, taking a look at the current uh, initiatives or planning, 
quite often we'll use the third or fourth quarter of the year to play in the, the following year's education calendar. But you, you will look at different things like enrollment support, uh, engagement opportunities, whether they're going to be live, virtual, phone, whether they're group or individual, and, and more recently, financial well-being. Uh, I think it was financial wellness and now it's financial well-being, but taking a more holistic approach to personal, personal finances and in some cases integrating that with uh, healthcare initiatives. So I, I find the focus on participant education, uh, particularly on those 401k and 403b plans, 457 plans, has, has been heightened over the past eight to 10 years. And then I said on an annual basis, I think there are those, those other components that do come up on an uh, ad hoc basis. Uh, one of them can be audit. I, I think that sometimes folks will want to put the audit process onto one of the uh, 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 quarterly review calendars just so that the other members of the committee that may not be hands-on on the audit process are up to speed on what's going on. But that's typically what we see in uh, meetings that we're involved in. I quite agree. I, by the way, I want to just highlight a couple of, of, of items that you mentioned. One is to, I, I've always been of the view that, that fiduciary training, having a record of, of training your, your committee members on fiduciary matters so that they understand uh, what they're getting into and what they're doing. And I, I hate to say it this way, but in part, it's a little bit of, of, of theater in that you just want to develop the record uh, and be able to de- document that these trainings have occurred. Uh, my accountant friends are fond of saying, if it isn't documented, it didn't happen. And in this context, I really do agree with them. One other highlight is you mentioned minutes. And I think that the minutes of these committee meetings are, are, are incredibly important. And in reviewing or doing these, I sit on our firm's uh, committee, um, I like a minimalist style. There are any number of styles of minute taking. Some some committees or boards like very detailed minutes that go on for pages and pages. Others just hit the highlights, and, and I really like that purely minimalist style of minute taking. The reason is this: if your plan does end up in in an investigation or or in a lawsuit, the more you write in the minutes, the more you give claims counsel the ability to pick something up. So I think the minutes are important, and, and they ought not to be an afterthought. Um, the last thing I'll note is the, is, the, is the introduction of the new committee member. That's somebody newly on board. And uh, toward that end, I, I, I'm planning to do a separate, um, a separate session or separate episode and invite the newest member of our retirement committee. And we'll interview her and, and hear about what it is like uh, to step into this rarefied environment and start talking about uh, all matters uh, of planned concern. Uh, that That's great. Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah. Um, let's see. Talk a little bit, if you could, about the the status that your clients want you to take on? Do they want you to be a co-fiduciary with them? Do they want simply uh, non-fiduciary advice? Do they want you to take over completely? And has that changed over the years? Have you? Because I've certainly noticed some changes, but I'd, I'd be interested to hear it from somebody uh, who's in this uh, 24-7. Yeah, it, it's kind of intriguing. It's, um, you know, in, in the old days, and I'll say the old days back, Alden, prior to um, my getting involved as an investment consultant, which was 1987 and probably 
prior to you uh, advising pension plans. So back in the day, or day when it was strictly defined benefit, things work quite a bit differently. You know, organizations could hire investment consultants to give them advice, and they could hire actuaries to give them advice. And, and it all came together pretty nicely and was orchestrated very nicely. Then you got to the 401k world that kind of got handed over to human resources. Um, and, and it took a while for them to get comfortable, even with the concept of a committee. Once they got comfortable with the concept of a committee, most of them took their guidance from the record keepers that they were working with. And I think they began to realize that the guidance that we're getting, that although credible, was the guidance that came directly from that one record keeper that they worked with. And they weren't getting a broad view of what's available in the marketplace. So I think that's when advisors became as important, advisors and consultants became as important to the 401k and ultimately then 403b and 457 markets as they were to the pension markets. What you're talking about is kind of intriguing because they're, they're in the investment advisory world, there are 321 advisors and 338 advisors. The difference is a 321 advisor makes recommendations to the plan sponsor, but ultimately the plan sponsor must approve those recommendations. And I'd say that that's where the majority of the market plays and always has. The 338 advisor has complete discretion to make changes without approval. So once they're given that 338 status, they can make a change and merely report back to the employer the changes that have been made. So it's a slight difference. I think I see some movement to the 338, but not a lot of movement. If you look at our client base, it's still over 90% have are using us on a 321 advisor basis. Where 338 comes important is where plan sponsors do not have the time, the interest, or the resources to pay attention. And then they may also be interested in a 316 advisor. And that's more on the administrative service side, where I mentioned there are record keepers and third-party administrators. There are now 316 uh, fiduciaries and they're administrative fiduciaries. You probably know more about this than I do. Uh, I know some of the firms that are providing the service are, are law firms, some TPA, some record keepers. Uh, but that 316, uh, you can delegate the, the administrative functions uh, to that 316 uh, provider. And again, you still are responsible for having selected that 316 advisor as you are for selecting the 338 advisor. But it's another way of getting an arms uh, an arm's length um, advice uh, toward investment and administrative compliance. You know, Bob, I, I, my experience is it, it tracks the way you just described it. Uh, I'm seeing more and more 338 type arrangements where the advisor comes in and takes total control. What, And I'm seeing them more in financial services companies. Um, but I really wonder, you know, if things go sideways, and, you're, and you have, uh, have discontent employees and they come to you and start complaining about the structure of the investment venue, what are you going to say? Well, well don't look at me. Uh, my, my, the advisors we hired did all of that. I don't know. I think yeah. that's a, kind of a hard sell. Um, it's, I, 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 yeah. I, for, for me, the, the, the bottom line is the difference between the advice they're going to get to us from 321 versus 338 is the same. 
It's just that we're going to be able to, I guess, implement it more seamlessly or potentially more quickly on a 338 basis. Personally, I much prefer the 321 because the, the client is more engaged. And my concern is that we have to represent the best interests of the plan participants. We have to understand the employer and the demographics of its participants. And the less dialogue and relationship and interaction we have with a client, uh, the, the I, I think it's the more difficult that becomes. Uh, but, but most of the clients that, that, that we work with at a 338 basis are still meeting on a regular basis. They would just not want to have a deferred meeting uh, cause a defer in an investment change. So it's and, and that's, that's a good point. So, so we've been going for a while. I'd like to keep these episodes to around 20 minutes. So I think if I could deliver one message to all folks so that surround the adoption and operation of a 401k plan, including boards, is that companies don't go out and buy a 401k plan. It's not like they outsource the whole thing like they, like they buy a widget. The, the plan, they are the, the folks, it is the company's plan. They hire some help called service providers. But at the end of the day, the key decisions all really do fall on them uh, for the most part. So once you get that shift in mindset, people tend to pay a lot more attention and get things right. Anyway, um, Bob, thank you so much. I really appreciate you know, your participation in uh, the inaugural session of what I hope to be a monthly uh, podcast that goes on for a while to talk about uh, all aspects of committee operation. Uh, in the first few episodes, I'm going to try to stick to folks uh, in the consulting space on the theory that, that you folks really are closest to the nuts and bolts of what happened. Then we'll branch out to, uh, to other service providers and folks that uh, that play a role in all this. So thank you so much for your time. I well, thanks it. for including me. I had a ball. Okay. Thank you. Take care.